The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning again, everyone. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We just passed through the halfway point in our summer sermon series on the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Through this book, we're seeking wisdom. We've defined it for you as competency with regard to the realities of life. So knowledge about how things in this world really are and how they work how they actually work and how they relate to one another, along with the capacity and the will to align ourselves with that reality. And several weeks ago, we considered speech and then friendship. And then last week, Josh preached on listening. And today we're talking about self-control. Some of our friends recently went down to the Congress Bridge to watch the bats fly out from underneath it, along with all of the tourists who are there. And there was a man on a bike riding back and forth with a megaphone in one hand saying, do not move here. I repeat, do not move here, which I feel like I've wanted to do at some point, probably all of us. So why haven't we? Why don't we? Maybe self-control, but it's, it's not on our culture's highest list of values or virtues. In fact, it increasingly seems that The the most effective way to get something done in our culture, or to especially to get attention for yourself, is to lose control of yourself and your desires, your inhibitions, your emotions. Doing so is described as authentic or honest or even refreshing. And so self-expression, regardless of what that expression might be, as opposed to self-control, it's certainly on the list of our highest virtues, maybe even at the very top. And listen, I have recently begun watching the Apple TV series, The Morning Show. Have you, have you seen this show? Do you know it? We're a few years behind. It came out several years ago in the wake of the Me Too movement and especially the Matt Lauer scandal on the Today Show. But it's still very insightful to our times, I think, because it, it wrestles with this tension between self-control and self-expression. And almost everyone on the show, all of the characters, they lack self-control across the board. One of the main characters is this woman named Bradley Jackson, played by Reese. Witherspoon, and she is defined by a lack of self-control with her tongue. She cannot control her tongue. And in years past, it's hurt her 
It's hurt her character. It's hurt her personality. It's, it's hurt her ability to rise in the ranks of her career. But now that times has changed, it's beginning to help her. She's being rewarded for it. While there are other people on the show, particularly men who have lacked self-control sexually. And in years past, they weren't punished for it. Uh, but now they are being punished for it. But again, no one has self-control on this show. And the question is, do we, do we have self-control? And so what is it? Number one, what is self-control? What do we all do? Number two, and then three, where is self-control found? Those are our three points this morning. First of all, what is self-control? According to our Proverbs here, it's like a wall around a city. Look at the very last proverb that's printed for you there. Chapter 25, verse 28, it says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That is somewhat of a dead metaphor for us because modern cities don't have walls around them. All ancient cities did. And why? Why do they have walls around them? Well, for protection from the chaos and the evil and the violence of this world. Today, we build prisons with walls and with fences and with guards in order to keep all the bad guys in. In the ancient world, they put the wall around the city and the fences around the city with guards to keep all the bad guys out. Outside the city was where the criminals lived and the, the gangs and the marauders and, and everyone lawless because it was lawless. Inside the city, that's where business was done. It's where everyone brought their goods in order to sell because they could have an economy within the city because there was a system of justice within the city. Outside the city was chaos complete and total chaos. And so a city without walls, according to this proverb, it's an image of a place that is completely defenseless against the chaos and the loss and the pain that is a part of this world and will come upon you at some point. And so what it's saying is, in a positive sense, if you have self-control, you have a defense. If you have self-control, when the chaos hits, you won't be overrun because you're defended by self-control. It's like a wall against the chaos of this world. And here's a definition for you. I shared it with you a number of years ago when I preached from Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. It's from Tim Keller. This is what he says. He says, self-control is the ability to recognize and choose the important thing over the urgent thing. The ability, the capacity, the desire to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. That is not what we have in these other Proverbs. You see, chapter 23, verse 20 and 21 says, Be not among the drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. It's a picture of a community. And notice that, first of all. It's not just individuals. It's, it's a community. And they have allowed the urgent craving for one thing squeeze out all proper concern for anything else. And how are they clothed? What's it say? They're clothed in rags. And why? Because they do not work. And they do not work because they're sleepy. And they're sleepy because their desire for the pleasure of alcohol and food has become undeniably urgent. And so, and, and it's not even just a one-off sort of way. This is a way of life for them. It's a habituated way of being. What we have described for you before as a vice and like a vice tool, it has them in their grip so much so they can't recognize and they can't choose all of the things that are more important than drinking and eating. They've lost that capacity. They're like Esau in Genesis 25. And I printed 
Genesis 25 for you here, a portion of it. We didn't read it, but I wanted you to see it because I want you to see the word hunter in verse 27. You see that word hunter? And then the word game in verse 28. You need to know it's the same word in Hebrew, but it's a contronym. Same word, two opposite meanings. And this contronym, hunter or gain in Hebrew, sounds very much like the words cooking and stew in verse 29. And that also is the same Hebrew word. And so the author is intentionally playing upon all these sounds of these words. They all sound very, very similar. Esau is the hunter, but Jacob is stewing. Esau kills game, but Jacob cooks stew. They all sound very, very similar, which is seeking to raise the question, who's really the one being hunted here? Who's really the one being hunted and who is the hunter? And ironically, the answer is Jacob is the one who's hunting. And Esau is the stew, which I think is meant to lead us to ask ourselves, is there anything that's hunting me? Is there anything within my life that I especially need a wall of defense? Because there are powers in this world still just like Jacob. Two weeks ago, I mentioned the incredible rise of middle school girls in our country who now identify as transgender. I told you that that percentage is now 70 times higher among middle school girls than it is among the general population. 70 times higher. I told you about my friend Jim Pachta, who is an LPC in Dallas with significant experience in this area. And he, he says, and he explains this increase as being the result of a social contagion. And he's, he's not alone in viewing that that way. In fact, there was an article from several years ago on the Gospel Coalition website about social contagions in general. This man named Joe Carter wrote it, and he found that from 2011 to 2013, almost 20% of women reported having some sort of sexual contact with another woman. And the percentages are now higher, but then 20%, even though then only 7% identified as lesbian or bisexual. And Stats like that led to the designation of the term bicurious. You know that term, bicurious? It's a label for people who are interested in having same gender sexual experiences, but without labeling their sexual orientation as bisexual. And many researchers and scholars are now saying that a social contagion is the best way to explain the dramatic increase among young girls in particular who are identifying as transgender or even bi-curious. So Joe Carter says it's the ubiquitous promotion by the media of bisexual female relationships that have promoted the idea that such experimentation is a natural part of growing up female. It's not. The data, the research, the statistics say it's not. Society has never said something like that, that it's a natural part of growing up female because it's, it's social. It's a, it's a social contagion. It's a social power. It's coming upon people, much like Jacob here with Esau. And the point is, Esau has no wall of self-defense. And so do we because we can't keep the chaos of the world from coming upon us, but we can have a wall to defend us. So do we, do you have the capacity to recognize and to choose the important thing over the urgent thing, or better yet, the important thing over the current thing? Do you? Second point, here's what we do. Point two, we all run to a high 
or strong tower. Look at Proverbs 18, verses 10 and 11. It's the first two Proverbs that are printed for you there. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. What we're meant to see here is is a comparison through what's called Hebrew parallelism. They put certain ideas or words in parallel to one another. And the name of the Lord is set in parallel to what? To a rich man's wealth. And the safety of those who run to the name of the Lord is contrasted with the imaginary safety of riches. So let me just adjust that definition of self-control that I gave you just a moment ago, just just a little bit. Self-control is the capacity to recognize and to choose the ultimate thing over the immediate thing. The ultimate thing, the ultimate good, the highest good, that which is most important and most valuable over a lesser but more immediately accessible and readily available good. That is what is being contrasted here. God himself versus the best things of life. God himself versus money, which in many ways is the highest good of this world because money can give you any and everything of this world. And that's what's being contrasted. We're supposed to think God versus anything else. God versus everything else. That is the contrast. And more than a contrast, it's also a choice. It is a choice as well. The name of the Lord or your money. The name of the Lord or anything to which you run when the chaos and the pain and the anxiety and the fear and the loss of this world inevitably hit and you tell yourself, if I just have this, if I just have this and and nothing else, I'll be okay. If I have this and nothing else, then all is not lost. And then you choose. We all choose because we all have a strong tower. We all have a high tower or a walled city. We all run to something. Here's the point. If that one thing that you run to in your soul is anything other than God, it's an imaginary tower. It is a false tower. It is insecure and temporary and penetrable and fragile and fallible. And if you actually run to it in a sort of tangible way, the way that our Proverbs describe drunkards or or gluttonous people running to alcohol or to food, or whether you actually run to your work to to seek money, wealth, success, and sacrifice everything else for it, do unethical or, or illegal things, if you actually run to those things, or you do so in a more emotional and spiritual way, the way that we parents do with our children, and we think if they're happy, if they're successful, then that's all I need. That's it. If they have that, then I'm okay. So whether you run actually or emotionally to anything else, when the chaos and the loss and the fear and the pain of this world hits, it will reach you. That's what the Proverbs is saying. I mentioned that Apple TV show, The Morning Show. The main character on that show is Alex Levy. She's played by Jennifer Aniston. She's the lead female anchor whose counterpart and partner on the show, Mitch played by Steve Carell. He's been accused of sexual misconduct in the workplace, and now he's a sexual predator in the mind and and the court of public opinion. He's been fired. And so Alex sneaks over to his house in the middle of the night, in the very end of the first episode. It's a torrential downpour. It's almost like a baptismal moment in so many ways. And, And she goes because she has to see him. 
She has to see him and she has to talk to him. She has to confront him, but she doesn't confront him about the affairs. Not, not exactly. She doesn't scream at him about that, nor about the women and, and how he's hurt them, nor about how he's hurt himself, nor what he's done to his wife or what he's done to his children. This is what she screams. She screams, your philandering has killed me and I'm going to lose everything, Mitch. There's no guarantees, zero. Our star was built on chemistry and you just blew it up. You, you stole my life with this. I gave up everything for this show, any chance of having a normal life. And you just put me in a position of losing it, of losing everything, of having nothing, of having no one. So why does she scream about her career to Mitch? Because it's her strong tower. It is the high tower to which she has always run for her ultimate security when everything else was falling, thinking this won't fall. It's where she ran for her meaning and her purpose and her significance. It's what she ran to to think that this will give me life without end. And all of a sudden it is ending. Just like her marriage and her relationship with her daughter and her friendship with Mitch and her mental health and her youth and her physical beauty. In the end, her career was as imaginary a high tower as everything else. And so she says, I have nothing. Because she chose the immediate over the ultimate. And we all do. We, we all do. We all have imaginary high towers to which we run. That in one sense is what sin is. It is the alluring power that's been released upon this world and dwells within each of us that pushes us to run to any place or to anything other than God, believing I'll be safe here. I'll be secure here. I'll be okay if I'm here, if I have this. And so what is it for you? We all have it. What is it for you? Like our Proverbs, is it food or is it drink? Or like the illustration from the morning show, is it sex? Or is it technology or entertainment or friends or kids or marriage, your spouse, your work, your wealth, your comfort, your politics, your candidate, your country? Because listen, you will eventually lose control of yourself if you try to make any of these good things into ultimate things. When they fail, when they fall or end or lose or leave or collapse, so too will you. But it doesn't have to be this way. We can have self-control. Point three, self-control and where it's found. The Apostle Paul, in our New Testament reading from Titus, speaks about self-control. He uses this word. It's a compound word in Greek. It comes from the, the Greek word for safe or secure and also joined together with this word for midriff or for gut because ancient Jews believed that the center of our being was our, was our midriff, our gut. It controlled everything else. We typically say heart. So we could probably translate this word security in heart. Paul also, when he writes in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit and self-control is the last piece of the fruit of the Spirit, he uses a different word. There it's the word, the Greek word for power or mastery. It's this great word, kratos, sounds like power. And then he joins it to this prefix that means in or inside. So internal mastery and internal power that regardless of what happens externally, internally, you're not overrun. So there is an unassailable inner power over the self. 
and Jacob found it. Jacob did. Same guy in Genesis chapter 25. Uh, He's transformed by the time we get to Genesis 29. He's different. He's no longer stealing like he is in Genesis 25. He's, He's now in Genesis 29, he's serving. He's no longer tricking or taking advantage of people. In fact, he's trusting them and even submitting himself to them. He's no longer seeking to be in control of everything outside of him and all the people and all the circumstances around him. He now has this inner control, this inner mastery, this unassailable inner power. And do you know what happened to him? Do you know? What happened to him is Rachel. Rachel happened to him. Maybe you know the story. It's a simple story. Esau is after him to kill him. And so Jacob's running. He meets this family. They have two daughters. One of them is Rachel. And the scriptures say that she is beautiful in form and appearance. And so Jacob tells her father, I will serve you seven years for her to marry her. And then the Bible says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him, but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Oh, it's not how we're supposed to read it. We're not supposed to read it sentimentally. We can, but we're supposed to read it much more deeply than that. We're supposed to read it spiritually and theologically. And here's the deeper point. And that is that our will is always mastered by what we love. Our will, our choices are always mastered by what we love. What we love most controls us always. Jonathan Edwards, arguably the greatest American theologian has ever lived, he wrote a treatise called The Freedom of the Will, and that was his point. His point was that we never actually really do anything that we don't actually want to do, that there's no real division between our will and our emotions. And some of you might think, well, what if I'm being robbed? What if somebody puts a gun to my head and says, give me your wallet, and I do give him my wallet. I don't want to give him my wallet, but I do. I choose against, I choose in my will against my emotions. No, you don't. No, you don't. You just wanted to live more than you wanted to keep your wallet. You loved your life in that moment more than you loved your money. And that is the point. We always choose according to what we love most, according to what is highest in the hierarchy of our loves. And whatever is higher, we choose. So did Jacob want to work for Laban for seven years? Laban, his future father-in-law, was a nightmare. Did he want to work for that man? No. He didn't long to work for that man, but he longed for Rachel. His greater love for her mastered all other desires within him. And he chose the important The important thing over the urgent thing, he chose what was ultimate over what was immediate. He found self-control where? In love. He found self-control in love. And so did Jesus, God in the flesh. Did he want to go to the cross? It's a complicated question. Because you remember what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup what? This this cup of God's judgment, God's punishment, your punishment upon the sin of everyone, the sin of the world, let this cup pass. He didn't want it. He didn't want to lose the father. He didn't want to endure the crushing weight of sin and evil and hell, but he did. Because why? Not my will, but thy will be done. Why? Because he loved something more than he loved his own life. You and me and us and this entire world. He chose what was more important over the immediate, and the cross was the greatest display of self-control because it's the greatest expression of love that the world has ever known, and you can share in it. 
You can run to the name of the Lord as your strong tower, just like Proverbs says. And here's how. Here's the first step. Very simple. Tell yourself the truth. Because that's how you begin to run to the name of the Lord. In the Bible, a name is more than just a title. It is, it is something that reveals character. When someone's character or soul changes, their name changes. And so Abram became Abraham. And, and Simon became Peter. And Saul became Paul because they were changed. Names convey who you really are. And to run to the name of the Lord is to forcefully and even continually tell yourself in the midst of all the chaos and all the loss and all the pain of this life, this is who the Lord really is. This is who he is. This is what he's like. This is how he loves. This is how much he loves me. This is how good he is. This is how powerful he is. This is how present he is. And he is enough. He is infinitely more than enough to give me life. Everything that he has done, everything that he will do, because he can right all wrongs and he can restore all losses and he can heal all wounds. And so do that. Tell yourself the truth in and through his word. Read his word. Tell yourself the truth. In fact, that's much of what prayer really is. In reality, prayer is talking to God about who God is. It's telling God who he is. Does God need for us to tell him what he's like and who he is? No. We need to tell him who he is and what he's like. That's why the Psalms major as they do on talking to God about who God is. So Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him only comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. So tell yourself the truth about who he is and about the grace of God that Titus says has been revealed to us in and through Jesus Christ. That he's come to us. We've seen him. We've beheld him. Because when we tell ourselves the truth, when we tell ourselves the truth through God's word, by prayer, our hearts are converted to love, to love him And when our hearts are converted to love him and others in him and because of him, we gain self-control. So run to the name of the Lord as your strong tower. Tell yourself the truth. And your heart might be converted to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, your neighbor as yourself, and you won't be shaken. You will not be shaken. You will choose the important over the urgent. You will choose the ultimate over the immediate. You are God's Rachel. You are God's Rachel, and so make him yours. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us because of your son and through your son, that we might be people like yourself, that we might be people controlled by the very love which you have for us and that we in turn have for you. We pray this in his name. Amen.